welcome to Conversations with Matt Dwyer. I'm, as always, Matt Dwyer. Um, if you like my theme music there, that is a band called Les Blanks. Please check them out at lesblanks.com and, and buy some of their music. I think there might be some on there for free. Also, if you haven't listened to Conversations with Matt Dwyer before, um, it's pretty much just what the title there is suggesting. It's a conversation with me and uh, usually someone very interesting and fascinating. Today I speak with Dave Alvin of The Blasters. He played with X, uh, and now he's a so- solo artist and a social artist. I was going to say social artist. Uh, Mr. Alvin's interview is fucking incredible. <laughs> there are some stories, I don't want to ruin anything, but I think one of the best stories that's ever been told on my show happens in this episode. It's really incredible. Enjoy. Um, I guess I, w- w- I saw you do that Jail Gator Doors benefit. Yeah. Uh, I just want to say I'd never, I definitely knew your music, but I'd never seen you live before. And not to insult any of our mutual friends, but you really stole that show, in my humble opinion. Oh, uh, that's because we were only on for two songs. <laughs> <laughs> you know, keep it short. And, you know, get in and get out. And and it was a strange. It was a great evening, but I'd been. It's a long story, but. I'd been rehearsing for like six hours and then ran over, you know, met my brother. We played the two songs and then I had to leave again. So it was like, blah, blah, how you doing? Blah, 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 good night. You know, <laughs> gone. So, um, yeah, but it was great, you know. And, uh, you know, Wayne's always, he's always got good musicians and he's always a very generous and, and, uh, and supportive musician, you know, uh, when you're playing with him besides his personality but you know he's he he makes you sound better he's he's incredible and i i'm doing my research on because you mentioned your brother and i yeah. was reading about how now i'm blanking on the club you guys used to hang out and you have a song named after it the ash oh the ash grove yeah 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 uh it was a club it, it's hard to believe now um but it it was a um it was where Fred, not Fred Siegel, uh, but it was near Fred Siegel on Melrose. Uh, it's where the um, the improvisation uh, was where the Ashgrove was, and that neighborhood was completely different, <laughs> you know, completely different. You were talking late 60s, early 70s, and the club was there from the late 50s on to the mid-70s. And uh, But it was a great place because you could go, and on one hand, you could see a bunch of musicians, some of whom were famous, you know, like Muddy Waters and people like that, or, uh, you know, Albert King. But on the other hand, you could also see people that weren't so famous that Ed Perlow and Nash Grove would bring out for extended runs. Um, so you get a lot of ob- more obscure guys like Juke Boy Bonner and J.B. Hutto and people like that, you know, and then you got like Loke guys that live locally in L.A., like Big Joe Turner and T-Bone Walker and, and uh, Eddie Cleanhead Benson and, and George Harmonica Smith, people like that. But it was, he would have them for three, four nights, you know. And so we could go, you know, we'd some, you know, we'd, we'd finagle a ride from Downey because 
I was way too young to drive. My brother was too young to drive when we first started going. How old were you? Twelve. You were going to this club at twelve? Yeah. That's incredible. Yeah. I had a very... Um, um, my father was a union organizer, so he was gone a lot, and I had a very um, understanding mother. You know, my uh, my mom would drive me. I saw Jimi Hendrix twice because my mother would drive me and my friends at the gig and then sit in the car outside, you know. And, <laughs> and we were little kids, you know. We were like 11, 12 years old. And my mother would say, don't eat anything. Don't eat or drink anything. At one time, she even made me peanut butter jelly sandwiches <coughs> to take. And, uh, cause, and, and you know, it's not like these were happening at the Avalon Ballroom in, in Haight-Ashbury or something. No, these were regular old Jimi Hendrix at the Forum. Or, uh, yeah, Jimi Hendrix at the Forum was one time I saw him. Then I saw him at the Devonshire Downs uh, Rock Festival, which was this great one-time-only festival uh, way out in the valley. And that one, yeah, there's probably stuff and stuff there, you know, <laughs> that one. She, she may have been right. Did your mom know you were, like, at 12 going to these shows? Or, like, well, she would drive sne- us, to, you know, oh, I but thought not maybe to the Ashgrove. Yeah, that's stuff. what I meant. Uh, no, uh, she would, um, but she was okay as long as we didn't come back, you know, trashed or anything, you know. Uh, my mom had been a, uh, uh, in the 30s, my mom had been a uh, very small-time, contortionist dancer on, you know, very small-time vaudeville. Very small-time. But that was her dream. She wanted to be a dancer, and, and uh, yeah, she was a great contortionist, <laughs> believe it or not. Wow. Where did so you... she, she understood the allure of, 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 of the nightclub, you know. Wow, that's crazy. Did your mom, like, tour around the country and do... No, that's Because no, no, that's no, fascinating. No, strictly... Strictly, yeah, we found so we never, I never knew about it until I was like in my mid-teens, and then these photo, these two photographs appeared in, of our mom, you know, when she was like 11, you know, in her little contortionist outfit doing her thing, you know, doing her complete back turn, I was like, huh? <laughs> How could that be our mother, you know? But it was, yeah, and she had, uh, you know, she, she, had dreams, you know, and, and they were unfulfilled. She had a horrible uh, first husband who tried to use her. My mom was a, a pretty healthy gal, and, you know, she was a factory girl, was her, was her how she made money. And uh, she had a rotten first husband who tried to use her to get out of World War II. I've got to support my poor wife who can't work and she's wor- and he wasn't working and she's doing the factory job so that's when she left him and but by that time he he had managed that asshole had managed to squash her dreams so our mom was very forgiving as far as us going to bars and being attracted to that that lifestyle she kind of understood it a little bit was cuz you that's when you would go see big joe turner and stuff that was like late 60s early 70s mm-hmm. yeah. isn't that is that like isn't it kind of Strange music for a twelve-year-old to be attracted to in that era. No. I'm, I'm not sure. Like, yes, yes, and no. Uh, I I didn't consider it strange to be attracted to, but you know, I'll put it this way: when I was in high school, um, and there'd be a party, and I'd be invited to a party, the year, there was usually the caveat of "Don't bring your records." <laughs> <laughs> so, so yeah, it didn't strike us as weird. 
or you know the, the my brother's friends were you know older than me of course and uh, and my brother was older and and some of his friends were older than him and for them it, it was easy to like this stuff to be fascinated by it a lot of the people my age no it did it, it, it what didn't make sense to them then later on in life it, it does but at the time no you know but we had my brother phil and i had uh, these older cousins and our older cousins kind of shaped our music you know we had a we had one cousin was a guy named Mike Keller, and he lived in Whittier, which was you know near our hometown of Downey. And Mike played; he was maybe about six, seven years older than us, and and he played the banjo and he played guitar, and he was a folky. You know, he liked Ramblin' Jack Elliott and Sonny Terry and Brownie McGee and Dave Van Ronk and people like that. Um, and uh, then we had our cousin Donna, who was about 10, 11, 12 years older than us. And she was a total, as she described herself, you know, she was a rock and roll chick. She loved R&B and doo-wop, you know, and that's where we first heard Big Joe Turner and Ray Charles and the Medallions and the Penguins and, you know, the Thrillers and, the, you know, music like that. And then I had a cousin, J.J., who was about Donna's age, and he lived out in, um, he grew up out in the West Valley up in where what's now Granada Hills, but what was then ranch land, and he was he was all about your Buck Owens and George Jones. So, yeah, I'm really just my cousin's taste in music <laughs> consolidated. <laughs> you know, it's really it. You know what you hear when you're a kid, and so we heard this stuff as little little kids. You know, three, four, five, and so much of popular music then was based around the the blues f- form you know not so much that not so much muddy waters or Helen wolf but the actual form of the you know 12 bar one four five wipe out you know so much of surf music was based around blues forms you know um so that form and those you know those rhythms were already there and then we just took it a bit further you know uh, and you know we were attracted to music and musicians, and so we just wanted to know more and more and more and um and you know it, it wasn't even an act of rebellion you know against our parents or you know for some people, music is an act of rebellion, and for us it was it was just uh, you know um, i don't know a continuation of everything we'd been brought up with you know so when did you when did you and your brother start playing? Well, my brother started playing real early. He had a band. He always had a garage band going from about the age of thirteen on, and um, and it and it morphed so that by the time he was sixteen, he had a great blues band. Um, there was a lot of great musicians where we grew up. Why I don't know, but there were, and why they were attracted to um, to R and B and blues more than than other types of music. I don't know. But they were, and there was great guitar players, great drummers, piano players, everything. So eventually, they all found my brother because of his great voice, you know. And um, so I didn't really start. I, I played um, because there were so many great guitar players. I didn't even. I never thought guitar was even a possibility, you know. Um, and so I started. I realized if I was going to get invited to the jam sessions. You know, I'd have to 
play something else. <laughs> so I took up a saxophone and flute, you know. And but whenever the guitar players would, whenever there'd be a break to go, you know, get a hamburger or something, you know, I'd be watching their hands and I'd run over as soon as they were gone. I'd pick up their guitars and start, okay, how do I do this? How do I do this? <laughs> oh, you know. And so I really didn't start playing guitar kind of seriously until I was, well, actually, until I was in my thirties, probably. But really, yeah, well. I yeah that yeah um, you know seriously no but yeah I don't know <laughs> it might have been last week you know um, yeah I, I look I, as I was saying I saw Jimi Hendrix when I was twelve so everything kind of is graded on that scale you know <laughs> you know yeah so and so's pretty good guitars not Jimi Hendrix you know what I mean <laughs> and so I don't. You know, I think I'm a I'm an okay, pretty good guitar player. You know, I'm a I'm a when I'm good, I'm a really good songwriter. But I'm a, I'm, I'm an okay guitar player now. So I didn't really, but anyway, I didn't start playing guitar really until I was like 19 or so. When when I started, okay, I'm going to learn this. You know, yeah, it seemed to work out all right. <laughs> if if I, uh, <laughs> it's all in how you hold it. <laughs> you know. Well, I mean, because you played with X as a guitarist, and I mean, yeah. so you can't be some, you can't be too schlubby. Oh, I'm not schlubby, you know. But there, <laughs> there's a, there's another level, you know. There's the Jimi Hendrix level of guitar players, you know, um, Richard Thompson, people like that. And that's that's another level, you know. If I practice every day, I may make make that when I'm around 88. You know, I'm, I'm not kidding. I'll make it if I live that long. I'll get, well, I'll get close anyway. And then it, did all that from the high school bands in 19, is that what turned into the Blasters, or was that a different progress? That was sort of, it was a combination of, we had all quit, you know. Um, it was the seven. It was the mid, mid-70s, mid and um, there was nothing going on. You know, the Ashgrove had burnt down. The sort of world, the Central Avenue world uh, in L.A., the blues and R&B world there, it was gone by this point, you know, there was, or in ruins, maybe is a better way of putting it. Um, rock and roll, I'd lost interest in rock and roll completely, you know. There was, you know, it, it was, uh, I in those, you know, it's just, there was nothing going on. You know, it got, it's hard it to got explain. Pretty bad. Uh, yeah, it's hard to explain. You know, there weren't clubs like there are now. You know, like we can, we could leave my house here and walk down to the club on the corner, and you can see a band that does original material and and probably sucks, but you know, hey, <laughs> it's a club and it's a band playing, and that's the great thing. Those days there wasn't that. You know, there wasn't that. You know, there was the whiskey and there was the Roxy and. Um, and that was it, you know. And and we're guys from Downey. We're never getting into those clubs, you know. That's that's never going to happen. Um, you know, there were neighborhood bars, say, you know, was, by this time we sort of were living around Long Beach. And there were neighborhood bars in Long Beach. And, and so that's kind of where the Blasters kind of um, developed our thing, you know. Um, because we used to work a biker bar called the uh, Sundance Saloon that was on Willow Street in West Long Beach, which is you know, basically right there, almost you're almost at the docks. And it was a rough place. There was, um, I forget the name of the biker uh, biker club that, that 
basically controlled that bar. But we would work a couple nights a week for free beer. And um, that's, you know, we had gotten together to play a wedding a couple months before. And uh, the, the guy that was hired to put the band together was a guy we grew up with named Frank Frillo. And Frank had, was a harmonica player, and we'd been kind of futzing around playing together. And so Frank put together the band, and he's the guy that talked my brother into letting me play guitar. Because all these other guitar players that I'd grown up with being intimidated by were either dead <laughs> or in jail or in insane asylums, you know, uh, or or quit to go work in factories when that was still an option, you know. So they were stuck with me. And we did this wedding gig, and it was like a little, you could, you know, there was a little bit of magic, you could tell. And so one thing led to another, and then we wound up playing this biker bar for about two, three months, working on our on our material and how to play live. And, you know, um, at least for me, it was how to play live really seriously. And, and um, so, yeah, we... we it was um, to answer your question with an incredibly long answer. Yeah, it was a little bit of both. <laughs> Edit that down. For the record, I love long answers. I do. It's yeah, pads your show, man. <laughs> no one, <laughs> no one wants to listen to my garbage. <laughs> oh, I don't know about that. Uh, yeah, and that uh, fuck balls. My brain went flat. Forgive me. <laughs> it's okay. But uh, the blasters. How did you develop that? To where it grew to the next level, because you were saying you were guys from Downey. Was there some? Is there like some kind of? Was in those days? Was there a judgmental thing of like, yeah, they're from Downey? Yeah, yeah, yeah. It was real difficult for us to, you know, we started making, you know, we did um, a homemade demo thing because I would call the various clubs that were now starting to, to, you know, we we had already gone to the Mask and uh, started seeing bands like Axe, the Weirdos, uh, the Screamers, the Germs, uh, Alley Cats. Um, this great, great fucking period in music. And so this thing was starting to develop, and so then there, these clubs started developing, um, you know, whether it was Madame Wong's or the Hong Kong, um, the Starwood, which was maybe my favorite all in all. You know, and the Whiskey was starting to, to book gigs again, you know. Um, and so there was this, we knew there was this scene developing, this around 78, going into 79. And so when we formed in 79, then once we made the demo, I started trying to get gigs in these places. And that was, for a long time, it was impossible. You know, and basically, yeah, the response was, you're from Downey, who do you know? We don't know anybody. Because at this time, we didn't know, we didn't know anybody. And uh, so then you just get, you wouldn't get called back and, you know, and I was pretty persistent. I'd be calling these poor people that book. Well, they won't call them poor people. They could be assholes at times. <laughs> but you know, they were getting bombarded now by bands, and um, it's a long story. But basically, we there was a club on Redondo Beach called the Sweetwater, and um, we got a gig every Thursday night, free beer for half an hour. We would open up for this band called the Twisters who were like, um, they kind of presented themselves as a new wave band. Um, and what they were doing was, you know, they would do the, they would do Cars songs and Eddie Cochran and uh, Cheap Trick, 
and maybe not the cars. I mean, this might have been before the cars came out. I can't remember. But that kind of stuff. You know, it wasn't punk rock or anything, but you'd get, you know, whatever. And this guy and this gal walked in, and the gal was named Anna Stapman, and Anna was like a scenester in Hollywood. And she dug the band, and she was this young, you know, 19-year-old girl or so, sneaking into bars. And she started telling her friends, and then she brought down a couple friends, Pleasant Gaiman, and and um, uh, one thing led to another, and, and they kind of started spreading the word, you know. And that's that's they were like the scenesters that told the other scenesters, hey, there's these guys from Downey, you know. And um, and we had made a record on a small rockabilly label called Rolling Rock, and uh, there was about three thousand copies pressed up, and that started getting around. And then, so then the word of mouth picked up, and we, I remember, you know, we the first time we played the whiskey was with a great rockabilly singer who was on the label called uh, Ray Campy, and Ray got us the gig because Ray dug us. And uh, and then from that, you know, more word of mouth. Because in those days, word of mouth was a big deal. Um, and so we kind of had a little bit of the right place, right time, sort of. You know, wrong faces, but right place, right time. <laughs> and, um, you know, it, it kind of took off from there. And, and because I was quasi-booking and managing the band, you know, we had a... Our attitude then was, we'll take any gig, you know. And um, so... For the first year or so, once we started playing, getting gigs in, in Hollywood and all that, we were getting a lot of weird, you know, we'd be doing, in like in a one-month period, we did gigs opening for the Go-Go's, the Cramps, Asleep at the Wheel, and then one month after that, Queen. <laughs> you know? Holy shit! So, yeah, it was just like, <laughs> you know, we would play with anybody, anywhere, you know, and, uh, and so that was the ultimate, you know kind of deal. And Where did you open up for Queen? Oh, we did their it's we did their West Coast tour. Um can't remember is 81 or or so, 82. 81, I think. And we didn't even have a record deal. All we had was that small little independent rockabilly label that pressed up 3,000 cop. That's all we had. But um we had been we were playing a, a really terrible place in Hollywood. It was like, it was, a, I can't remember the name, Skaterama or something like that. It was a <laughs> roller rink, and they'd have bands play in the middle of their roller rink, you know, up on this riser as, as people roller skated around. And then there was this huge bar, though, where you could go hang out in the huge bar if you were a scenester, groovester. And it was, it wasn't a punk rock kind of thing. It was a new wave slash rock kind of thing. You know, I remember one night Eddie Money was in there, you know, that kind of, <laughs> you know, because it was a place where you could go, you could, you know, you know, musicians could go and scam on girls or scam on guys or get drugs or get just drink, you know, whatever, just or just meet people and hang out. And um, so one night we're playing there and and it, I have to say, you know, it was a jive gig, but it played pretty paid pretty good. So but. One night, the guys from Queen were in there, not not Freddie Mercury, but Brian May and Roger um, Taylor, and, and I can't remember the other guy's name. But they were in there having themselves a time, and they had an idea, and their idea was, let's get these guys to open up our shows, because they were having a... They had just released the, the record Crazy Little Thing Called Love, and I think that they thought, oh, this is a nice, good balance. You know, We'll get people in the mood for Crazy Little Thing Called Love by having this 
you know, old style rock and roll band, R and B band, rockabilly band with pompadours open up for us. And it was great. Um, once you could, you know, once you were done ducking the beer bottles in M eighties, <laughs> you know, because they didn't, they didn't put our name in the ads, you know? So you got to imagine the frustration of, of a bunch of classic rock fans. You're, you're in an arena, the lights go out, and then these lights come on the stage, and you see these four shadows. You go, there they are. There's our there's our queen. Oh. You know? And then the lights come up, and it's four guys from Downey. You know, <laughs> and uh, yeah, they were a little disappointed, to say the least. And so they they more or less let their feelings be known to us. But on the other hand, the way we viewed it was, on one, it, it made us a tighter, better band because if you got seventeen thousand people booing you. You're either doing something really wrong or you're doing something really right, you know. <laughs> and then our other attitude was, wait a second, you paid a hundred bucks to get in here. We're getting paid to play. Screw you, you know. We're playing a half hour. We're not going to stop, you know. How did that feel though? The first time you're like, I mean, that must have. Oh, it's on soul crushing. I, or did you laugh it off? It, it's a little bit of both. Because um, <laughs> I've the bombed, initial, by the way. The first gig was the first, yeah. The first gig was uh, San Diego at some sports arena down there. And, yeah, the lights go out, and people are thinking, okay, we will rock you, Bohemian Rhapsody, here it comes. <laughs> and, no, they get the blasters, you know. And this is when, before we had the horn section piano, but it was just four guys. So we're you're, you're kind of, you know, you have to, you, when you're playing arenas, you you can't see the audience. All you see is darkness. So you have to imagine you're in a you're in a pitch black room, but you can see the you can see your pals <laughs> that you're in the band with. <laughs> and but you but all you have is this huge wall of darkness and these lights blinding you. And then the lights go down and bam, boom! <laughs> for thirty minutes, you know. And then, you know, you finish the song, da-da-da-da-da, bomb, boo, queen, queen. Okay, thank you very much. Our next song is an Elmore James number, ba-ba, you know, and, and like that. But like I said, we viewed it as, you're, hey, we're getting paid to be here, <laughs> you know. We're hanging out backstage with the guys you paid to get in. Boo us all you want. We don't care. We don't know, we don't know their music. We don't know anything about you. We don't care. We're getting paid, you know. Um, so it... it and when we did um, when we did four nights at the forum, we did we did ask really nice. Could you please just give them some idea that 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 they're going to see something before they see their heroes? And so they were really nice, and they put our name in the ads and all that, and on the marquee. So so the booing was bad, but it wasn't as bad as San Diego. <laughs> um, and in Oakland, we did a couple nights in Oakland, and that was bad, but it was better in San Diego. But the, the worst was Phoenix, because um, we were playing outdoors. We were playing a place, um, you know, like some kind of like outdoor grassy knoll thing. You know, bring your blanket and your cooler, i.e. ammo. And, uh, <laughs> and so then we go up on stage, and it's daylight, so it's like a you know, late afternoon kind of show. And we go up on stage, and it's Phoenix, and it's 100 degrees, and they don't like us. <laughs> and 
they're letting it be known by you know this is where there was cherry bombs, and they oh. would they would reach into their cooler and take out their beers, smash their beer cans so that they were sharp projectiles, and then let us have it. And again, it was our attitude had to be. We're being paid to be here. We were just talking to Brian May before we went on. He's a great guy. You're never going to talk to him. You paid to get in, and you worship him. We're just fuckheads from Downey. We're getting what you want. Fuck you. Don't boo us. And um, so it just got intense, um, the Phoenix crowd. And I was one of the proudest moments I ever seen. I mean, it got so bad, the drummer got hit with a beer bottle. So he got up from behind the drum kit while the rest of us are still playing. And he started picking the crap off the stage and then pointing at people in the audience and throwing shit back. Okay, you, you. And as that's going on, one of the proudest moments of my life with regarding my brother, again, the rule is don't stop playing. Somebody threw a blanket <laughs> and it's windy. It's the desert. It's windy. The blanket flies on stage, completely covers my brother's head and guitar, but he didn't stop singing. So he's covered with this blanket, and he's like, you know. And at that moment, I was like, I love my brother. That's one tough guy, you know. So yeah, the the Queen tour was interesting, you know. God, that's a great fucking story. <laughs> I got more. I got more. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, you spend a great deal of time on the road, no? Yeah, yeah. And yeah, I f- the, thankfully, Cause, luckily. Yeah, I was reading something earlier today, but but you were saying, too, like how it's taxing and it's hard. Well, yeah, you know, I mean, all jobs are, you know, but I get two, two, and a, two hours, two and a half hours every night of, of, of shooting for transcendentalism, you know, where you can... Where you get that point where you're out of your you're out of your body and you're out of time and the the past is the present the future is the present you know you you get in that zone that musicians you know get into and um, so I get that yeah everything else is is now a drag you know in a way <laughs> because the food you know the food's really not great you know in general um, you know. Um, Airports suck. Airlines suck. Um, all that stuff gets old. And when you're a kid, you know, it's it's all about beer and girls, you know. And then that develops into, for some people, it becomes beer and drugs and girls or, and guys and whatever else it develops into. But then, uh, you know, when you reach a certain age, a lot of that, ta- lot of that tapers off and you're left with the music and the travel. And sometimes, yeah, you get a day off in Rome, you know. Um, I usually, when I'm, when I'm touring Italy, you know, make sure that I will pay for a day off so that we can all get a friggin' day off in Rome and go sit in the Coliseum or something. But in general, yeah, you know, it's a lot of, it's a lot of driving in vans. And, and, you know, I've never made enough to become... Um, I think it's hard enough for people like Bob Dylan or Bruce Springsteen to live in an altered reality in that, um, you know, that's how they can keep their muse up and keep their thing going. But they're in, they're in private jets and they're in fancy tour buses. And that's great. I wish I had it. It's not, but for us, it's vans and, and rental cars and, you know, but I'm working, I'm lucky. So I can't bitch really, you know, and every now and then, yeah, you get to take a day off and go some remarkable place in Southern Utah and, you know, go walk 
walk around Arches National Park or something. Or, you know, you do find a great restaurant like Cooper's Barbecue in New Braunfels, Texas. There's a plug. <laughs> or uh, Everett and Jones Barbecue in, in Oakland. There's another plug. You know, you get those, you have those things. Or a friend will say, let me take you to a restaurant that's good. But, yeah, in general, you're eating at Wendy's. <laughs> you know. And that gets real goddamn old. It can. I love my Wendy's, but, uh, but there's a plug. Yeah, there's a real. Yeah, that's a real plug. Well, you know, you get to like that stuff because it's what you eat. You know, six days out of seven. So all that stuff gets old. You know, comedians have it the same way. You know? uh, yeah, I... and um, you know, there's a lot of similarities. You know, except we can be louder. You know, it's really only the difference. But uh, that's you have the life though that most dudes dream of. Like, I mean, just being. I'm very a, lucky. Yeah, I'm very. How does trusted. that fucking feel when you're on stage and it's killing? It's like because every guy in the world wants to be that guy, and some chicks. Yeah, um, it, that's pretty good. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I mean, I've, I was talking about that zone. You know, if you can get to that zone, then. That's the thing, you know, and you don't get it every night. But if you have the right musicians, even sometimes with the wrong musicians, you know, but you just get to a place where, um, you know, um, for example, if if you're in the zone, you know, and somebody hits you with uh, something from the audience, it's just like you don't feel it. You don't feel anything because you're, you're I, I'm not trying to sound too nutsy here. <laughs> But, you know, you see it, you know, you, you you can go see a show and you know when the artist is in the zone. You know, you can tell. It's like if you look at the old films of, say, Jerry Lee Lewis from the early 60s when he's touring overseas in Europe and, and it's just this insane manic energy. He's in the zone, you know. He's not phoning it in. He's living, he's living it right now, that second. You know, you go see some acts and they're not in the zone and you, they're on the telephone, you know. <laughs> Hello, Cleveland. Nice to see you. You know, um, and they're just they're just phoning the show in. But then you can go see somebody else. You know, and you know if you saw, you know, say forty years ago, you saw Iggy Pop rolling around in broken glass. He was in the zone. You know, he didn't do that every show, but when he did it, it was like, oh, he's not feeling that. So it's kind of like people that walk on hot coals and all. You're just in a different mental state. You know, I'm not a psychiatrist, but I know that there's, you know, whatever chemicals are being generated, you know, you're, you're, when you're playing music, you're, when you're practicing, you know, you have to practice, if you practice with a metronome, you're practicing to learn how to play in time, you know, and to keep that time, keep up with that. And then when you're playing with musicians, once you learn the song and all that, then you're then you're 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 trying to play in time, and at the same time you're trying to keep your ears open to what the bass player's playing or the drummer's playing, you know, or the saxophone player, you know, whoever you're playing with. And so you got all these mental functions going on, and then and then when you get to the point where you're not thinking about what you're playing, that's it. I mean, that's just you can play the wrong note, and it's and it doesn't matter. You know, you're just you you've transcended into the other zone. And I and I need to be committed to a mental institution, now. <laughs> but that's really it, you know. I mean, that's what you know. People, you know, that's when you. That's the reason why I think a lot of musicians one are crazy, and two why you, you people get off stage, and you and you're high, 
you know, whether you've been drinking or doing drugs or whatever, or totally sober, you get off stage after that and you're high and then the come down begins, you know? So you have that moment with an audience. And for me, that moment with the audience is sacred, you know, because it's, I play odd music. These people like it. We share a certain thing, whether they're a lawyer or a truck driver. And then we transcend those differences the the gigs become more like a church service in that it's a community coming together. Follow me? I'm not crazy. <laughs> and then you get off stage, and you've had this moment, you've had this high, and it's like, well, yeah, I didn't get a chance to eat dinner. I guess we should go to Wendy's. <laughs> you know what I mean? <laughs> and some nights that's fine. It's like, yeah, that'd be fucking great. Yeah, Wendy's and the remote control but other nights, it's like you get off stage, you've had that transcendental high, and it's like, I got to do something. I got, I want to keep this up, you know. And that's why I think some people succumb to, you know, the various drug choices or alcohol choices, you know, because it's just there's that performer high. You know? Yeah, and then going back to a hotel room is incredibly lonely. <laughs> it can be, yeah. You know, you make up for that. Um, when you're younger by inviting people over. You, know? <laughs> Can I, you don't mind if I finish a cigarette, do you? I know no, you're not at all. Clean living people here. Good enough for Johnny Carson. <laughs> uh, what made you move on from like the blasters and want to go more of a solo route? I started developing more as a songwriter, you know, and um, I was writing songs. In the blasters, I was writing, my brother sang the songs and I wrote them. And when you're doing that, it doesn't matter whether you're writing for my brother or Barbara Streisand, you're eventually going to reach a point where we may have run out of things that we share. You know, you can't get too personal because you're handing the song over to your brother to sing. You know? <laughs> so you can't write about certain things. You know, it's just off limits. And then the, my brother has a very particular style of singing. And it's based on uh, certain blue shouters and, and uh, you know, like Wynoni Harris and Big Joe Turner and, you know, country blues guys or pre-war blues guys, Big Joe Turner and Big Bill Brunsey and people like that. But also Al Jolson and Crosby, you know. So you write songs that fit that voice of his. Um, but then I got to a point where it's like, I may have run out of those. And if I was going to develop as a songwriter, I was going to have to write songs that, that this sounds massively egotistical, but I, I had to write songs that I thought I could sing. Now, I, at the time, did not have any sort of voice at all. And, but I was kind of driven. And I was also, I didn't like, uh, we were always fighting. The whole band was fighting the whole damn time, you know. And we all grew up together. Um, and so because we all grew up together, it really was, like the cliche saying, it was a band of brothers. So it was fistfights, and, 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 you know, we would have a fistfight over chord changes. You know, I'd bring in a new song, and I hate that chord, you know. <laughs> <laughs> Come here. We're not using that chord. That's a horrible chord. Fuck you. You're using that chord. I wrote it. Bam, bam. And I got kind of tired of that, you know. And uh, we had this horrible gig in Montreal, and that was that was it. You know, after threatening to leave many times, I was just on stage. The drummers throwing drumsticks at my brother's head. You know, from from the drum kit, we sucked. <laughs> the the whole thing it was just the worst gig I ever played. 
And I just walked off stage and said, oh, you know, that's it. I'm done. You know, I'll, I'll finish out the gigs that are booked, but I'm done. I'm finished. I'm out of here. And, I, and so the next day I had a gig in um, New York City at, at Irving Plaza with the Knitters, which was John Doe and Exine and, and DJ Bonebreak and me. Um, you know, it's like a side project for me and, and the ex people. And so anyway, I got on a plane that morning, hung over in, in Montreal, flew to New York City, got off the plane, got on a cab, went directly to the five o'clock sound check, walked in, and I walk inside, there's John and Exine, and they just first thing they says, Hey, do you want to join X? Yes. So I had about twelve hours of being unemployed. Because <laughs> 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 you know? we we were all close friends then, so and it made total sense. I think they were getting tired of the the Every band has rules, you know, whether you're whether you're Radiohead or or, or the Rolling Stones. Everybody's got rules. Um, you know, the Radiohead and the Rolling Stones do not do polkas. That's the rule. You can tell that's one of their rules. And so the Blasters had rules. X had rules. And I think at that time I was fed up with the rules of the Blasters, and they were fed up with the rules of X. And so when Billy Zoom left, it was like, okay, let's we're going to be a really loud version of the Knitters, you know. What was because that scene that you were in is I would think a lot of people uh, equate that music scene in kind of LA's coolest, <laughs> for lack of articulation. It was one of the good ones, yeah. You know, it was um, it. It's hard to um, yeah. It's hard to exp- it's hard to explain to the kids today, you know. Um, I'm curious, yeah, because what do you think of the current scene in L.A.? Because, well, I don't really pay attention that much, <laughs> uh, just because um, there's not a there's not a real thrust to it, you know. The scene that we were part of was a lot of it was um, it wasn't really about getting a limousine. You know, um, for certain people did get limousines. You know, the Go-Go's did remarkably well, you know. Um, the motels did all right for a while there, you know. They they broke kind of mainstream. But they were, you know, Go-Go's were kind of a punk power pop thing, and motels were a new wave singer-songwriter thing. You know, all great bands and all that. But for a lot of the street-level stuff, you know, the Gears... Um, Saccharin Trust, the Minutemen. It wasn't about limousines, you know. And I don't, you know. So there was a thrust. There was this energy that was undeniable at that time. And there was no, for a, for a while at least, there wasn't any dogmatic rules really of what what is punk rock, you know. And it wasn't until sort of the speed, the high speed, you know, hardcore beach bands kind of came out um that that then the audience started applying that this is punk rock and this isn't you know so in the in the early days you could be walla voodoo with stan ridgeway or you could be the plimsolls of peter case or you could be x or you could be the blasters and and hey that's cool you know and then eventually came down you know it got weird near the end where you know if you didn't play a particular way it wasn't punk rock so we're going to beat you up you know <laughs> or or you know on the other extreme you know oh we don't hear the songs we're not going to give you a record deal you know um go away you know so you the 
the greatest thing, though, about that scene was a lot of the people all kind of looked out for each other, you know. Um, for example, there was a record label, or there was a magazine called Slash, which was like the meeting of art and punk, you know, Gary Panter and Lou Beach and a lot of great artists contributing to this thing. And they had a writer named Claude Kickface Bessie, who was a brilliant, brilliant, mad writer. And then they decided, well, let's make a record. You know, let's start a record label. And so they started Slash Records with a record by a, a Darby Crash and the Germs. And that record did really well, so they decided, let's do another. And, and the Germs said, um, you know, you guys should do X, because X couldn't get a record deal. And so then they did X, and they did really well with X. And then X said, hey, you know, you ought to sign, you ought to sign the Blasters. And so they did, and then we said, you know, a couple of year, year and a half later, we're like, hey, you know, you ought to sign, you ought to sign. There's a band in Austin called Rank and File. There's this band in East LA that pals of ours named Los Lobos used to sign, and that's kind of how it was in those days, you know. And that's among a lot of those people that that bond still exists, that sense of community, and all that, even though we all live different lives now, but that sense of community still there, but. That's kind of what made it special when it, when that scene ended and, and it was kind of like being cut adrift in some pretty rough seas, you know, the seas of, of the music business because you didn't have your pals around anymore, you know. Especially when I left both the Bl uh, Blasters and X and started a solo career, that was when I felt like miserably alone, you know. It's just like, um, you know, the scene here, it wasn't that it had died, it just wasn't what it was. And um, and then I'm I'm this solo act, and you know you're just a cutting adrift in a world of you know that's a little more uncaring than the than the L.A. rock alternative or whatever rock and roll scene was in the late '70s, early '80s. Yeah. Is it more difficult to be a solo act? You think? I mean, than a yeah, in a way. Well, artistically, it's easier because if if you get in an argument with the bass player, you just hire another one, you know. <laughs> As opposed to if you get in an argument with a bass player in a band, you 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 can't fire him. He can fire you, maybe. Uh, so it's difficult when you're in a band and you get a great review. You and the band share it. You know, you go have a beer. Hey, we got a great review in the Village Voice. Let's have a beer. If you're a solo act and you get a bad review. You got the bad review. The band, you know, if you get a bad review with the band, you're sharing it with four, five, six other people. Oh, yeah, fuck that guy. Yeah, he doesn't know anything. You know, you can... But when you're a solo act and you get a bad review, you're kind of sitting at home, you know, going, well, I guess I fucked that up, you know. <laughs> so, so it's a little more difficult psychologically. When you were in the middle of that scene, too, were you guys... Was everyone aware, like, holy shit, something really magical's happening? Yeah, or oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, and we were proud of it too. You know, you know, youth and um, and uh, pride. You know, <laughs> well, because it was, it was, it was magical. There were some nights that were just where gigs felt like you were changing the world. You know, and, you know, and in a way, you kind of, we kind of were. You know, all the all these bands. When I say we, um, you know, in the early '90s when grunge came out, you know, so much of of a certain element of, of grunge you know grunge was getting played you know they were calling it alternative but that's all you were hearing on the radio you know it's kind of <laughs> like and it was great and thank god they were finally playing it but is it really alternative if you're on the radio you know 
that's another issue. <laughs> but so many of these bands owed X, you know, Pearl Jam and 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 groups like that owed X. They owed Husker Du. They owed they owed all these bands that ten years, twelve years before could not get on the radio, and now the these bands were getting on the radio and selling a lot of records. Were you know, it, it's sort of it's sort of like a weird inverse of the Muddy Waters Rolling Stones thing, you know. But um, you know, at the time, yeah, it felt, yeah, it, it was, there was a buzz in the air, you know, and you wanted to go out every night. You wanted to go see bands because you know it was a it was a family, you know. That make any sense? Oh yeah, and I wanted to ask you about Downey because you. Because uh, yeah. you keep referring to it like, oh, we were just from Downey. And it's like, yeah. I don't know anything about Downey. Uh, is That's it... what I mean. <laughs> <laughs> All right. You, you captured it. Is it just very working class sort of? It's both. It, it, was, uh, it was a combination of everything. It was, uh, uh, when I was a kid, kid, a little kid, it was still partly rural. It was orange groves. You, there were still horses on the street and small ranches, things like that. But, you know, you woke up one morning and it was gone. That was gone. And... Uh, Musically, it was a great place to be because, you know, Southeast L.A. County was the the landing, the last stop for many cultural, ethnic diasporas. And so once we discovered older musics or traditional musics, we figured out pretty quickly that it was all around us. Where most kids don't, you know, you take what you're given, you know. Oh, yeah. I think Rick Ashley's the best thing ever, you know. <laughs> That's great. I love music. I love, you know, Justin Bieber. Whatever they're whatever you're selling, I'm buying, you know. And that's most people. And for us it was like I liked all music. I listened to all music, but once I figured out we figured out we could go see old bluesmen like Big Joe Turner, or you could just go to the neighborhood bar and there'd be this great piano player. There's a great guy that played in a bar two and a half blocks from our house named Lloyd Glenn who's a great blues, jazz, boogie-woogie pianist. He produced Ray Charles' first records. Wow. And he's playing in a bar, you know, 30 years later, he's playing in a bar two blocks from our house doing standards, and then we'd all gather around little kids. Play some boogie-woogie, play some boogie-woogie, play some blues, play some blues, you know. Shut up, shut up, shut up. <laughs> I'll play in a minute. i got to play this for now, you know. <laughs> and um, so that just led, you know, it was like, you know, deeper and further into different clubs, different musicians, different worlds. You could go see, you could sneak in and see great honky-tonk singers. You could see Wynn Stewart, you know, the great West Coast pioneer of, of you know, one of the craters of the Bakersfield sound. You, you could see guys like that, Billy Mize, another great Bakersfield artist who was working the, the bars in that area, you know. So you had everything from, you know, you know, prime rib lounges with, with easy listening piano bar stuff played by great blues pianists. Or you could go, you know, into a neighborhood joint and hear Big Joe Turner or T-Bone Walker. Not that hard, you know, from, you know, it'd be maybe a 10-mile, not even 10-mile drive, you know, 5-mile drive. You could drive 2 miles to Bell Gardens and see honky, full-on real-ass honky-tonk music and get your ass kicked, maybe. <laughs> you know, you could see all that. And so that world that was alive then, because from the Great Depression and the Dust Bowl and and um, all the sort of aerospace jobs that opened up during and after World War II, there people came from all over the United States and Southeast LA was where the factories were, is where the uh, um, steel mills in Southgate and Maywood. You know, Maywood had a huge Bethlehem steel plant. 
And so you had the people that came from the South or the Midwest or, or, or Chicago. They all brought their music and their culture with them. So you could soak that in. It, it didn't take much to, to dig it up. It was just right under a thin little layer of, of asphalt. You know, it was this whole other world, this whole other America. So in that sense, Downey was a great place to grow up. You know, it was near these clubs, you know, and, and if you couldn't make it the 25 miles to the Ashgrove, you know, which was a long way away, you could go into a neighborhood bar and see some great guitar player, you know. And um, so in many ways, it was a great place to grow up. Didn't you manage Big Joe Turner? I managed him one night, yeah. Oh, one night? Yeah, when I was 17. Yeah, um, um, got him a gig in, uh, no, I was, no, I was about 16, I guess. Yeah, I got him a gig at Linwood High. They were having a quote-unquote 50s night. And Big Joe had had a couple big hits in the 1950s, and and uh, you know they, they had a budget of 300 bucks, and so I called Big Joe Turner and said, you know, Saturday night, you know, whatever, April 23rd, 50s night, 300 bucks, you know. Yeah, cousin, I'm there. <laughs> and uh, my brother's band backed him up, and and then you know we, my brother and I went and picked him up, drove him over Linwood High, played the gig, kids loved it. He sat, drank his vodka and orange juice all night, sang his ass off, then we drove him home. And Yeah, we had a lot of ex- – and I had wore a little suit and tie, you know. <laughs> I was like, I'm a manager. <laughs> I'm managing Big Joe Turner, you know. And I settled up at the end of the night. I went to the – whatever, the, the dean's office and got the check and everything. <laughs> Thank you, sir. It's great to do business with you. you know? so. And uh, just to, to wrap it up is uh, you have a new album. Yeah. We, so let's plug that. Sh- let's do that plug. <laughs> sudden, sudden silence. <laughs> uh, well, yeah, it's the first record my brother Phil and I have made together in 30-some years since the last Blasters studio album that I played on was a thing called Hardline. And I quit not long after that. And um, a couple years back, I wrote a duet for us, for my brother and I called What's Up With Your Brother? Because I was in this, because I get asked that a lot. (laughs) So does he, you know, they think they call Phil Dave and they call me Phil. And it's like, yeah, 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 you know, we're the Everly's, you know. (laughs) And, um, and so, um, then we got this, we did this weird thing with Stephen King and John Mellencamp and, uh, T-Bone Burnett, this Stephen King and, and John Mellencamp wrote this, um, gothic roots rock ghost story and they they had uh, elvis costello and cheryl crow and nico case and taj mahal and um um chris christopherson and, and mellencamp and um various people and they wanted us to play the lead characters to sing the the songs of the lead characters the, the ghost brothers of darkland county so it was kind of a weird request, but yeah, sure, you know, <laughs> fine. And we did it, and that was really, you know, hearing the two of us sing together, I was like, we, we sing so differently. My brother, like I said, is an old-fashioned, you know, sell it to the back, the last seat in the house kind of voice where I'm more unique and intimate. We'll put it, we'll describe <laughs> my voice that way. Or as my, you know, my brother does not like my voice at all. As, as, you know, he's referred to it as old froggy. You know, and uh, so, so anyway, I thought 
between the track on my record and the, and the the Stephen King thing, I thought, yeah, we could do an album together. And then my brother died um, two years ago, just about in Valencia, Spain, and was brought back to life. He flatlined twice and was brought back to life by a brilliant Spanish woman doctor, Doctor um, Mariela Cifuentes, something else. But anyway, she uh, she brought my brother back to life. And it was around that time I thought, well, maybe it's time to do a record together, you know. Um, and then our, our adopted brother died last year suddenly. And I I lost my closest friend a few years back, and, and my, our adopted brother was my brother's closest friend. And I figured, shit, we're not immortal, you know. And, and we spent so much time together as kids, sneak, you know, going to these clubs, collecting old 78s, you know, putting together our worldview, you know, our our personal world, you know, but we never really made a record just as he and I. The Blasters records are band records, you know. Everybody in the band had their input and their say, and and um, we never just did a record where Phil and I are just being brothers. And so I called him up, and I, and I thought about what we should do and there was no way I was going to write 12 songs for my brother to sing because that just would have been one it would have taken forever and two we would have fought the whole time and um, the other thing I thought was you know we can't have the guys really can't use all the guys from the Blasters because then it's a Blasters record and blah 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 and I thought of well if we do Big Bill Brunzi who was you know in my opinion it's like you have he was a great blues singer who had a 30-year recording career, and his influence stretched to everywhere, just about. Um, he was a brilliant, brilliant guitarist. He was a great songwriter and a magnificent vocalist, and he was the first blues guy to ever go to Europe. You know, He was the guy that broke down that barrier, and he became huge there. And, and he played in a variety of styles and genres, and I just thought, well, he's a great songwriter. He's written 300, 350 songs. He's all over the place. It's not just one or two things that he does. It's, And I thought, we both love him. We've loved him ever since we were 13. And uh, I just thought, well, that's the guy to do. You know, we can, a lot of his songs we can reinterpret in different ways. They don't have to sound like the original or this, that, and the other. And, you know, just... When your brother dies and then comes back to life, you know, after your parents are dead, your friends are dead, you know, blah, blah, blah. It's a big deal. So this was kind of like a, all right, let's make a record, you know. I hope it doesn't suck. <laughs> <laughs> when is that out? That comes out June 3rd. June 3rd. Which, by the time you hear this, will be three years ago. <laughs> <laughs> These are up for eternity, so. <laughs> oh, there you go. Uh and, and it's called Common Ground. Common Ground. Yeah. And you do you have a website and Twitter and all those things you want to plug? I don't do the Twitter. Oh, I, I tweeted know. at you today. I guess. Uh. Yeah, you're not gonna <laughs> you're not gonna hear back. <laughs> Sorry. Yeah, I, uh, there's a yeah there's a couple of Facebook pages that I I do check in on, but the, yeah, um, the, the, there's a website DaveAlvin.net, and. Uh, that's where, you know, tell you everything you need to know. Great. Thank you very much. Thank you very much. Thank you very much for listening to Conversations with Matt Dwyer. If, uh, again, if you can, donate some money there uh, to the road trip. Or if not, you can go to my Feral Audio page and 
uh, buy some shit on Amazon and, and we get a chunk of that money. So that would be helpful too. Follow me on Twitter. Go to my website, themattdwyer.com and check out all things Matt Dwyer. Thank you very much. I love you.
experience of the United States government, it is the mission of the National Security Agency to assess and flag citizens of the country who may present a threat to its security. The NSA has clearance to wiretap by any means necessary. Tapped. Incidental recordings of private conversations from the files of the NSA. Now on feralaudio.com.